You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. Welcome to WMQ&A, the Comics XF interview podcast, where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazowitz. And this week's guest is the writer of the new Oni Press series, Cemetery Kids Don't Die, Zach Thompson. Welcome back, Zach. Thank you so much for having me, guys. We're going to start with dessert first this week. Uh, it's It's been a few years since the last time you were on the show. And in that time, you became a dog dad. So please tell us about your dog. Yeah, for sure. Um, I am the dad of almost one-year-old golden doodle um, named Astra. She is um, doesn't really have a brain yet. She's just sort of like chaotic energy all the time. Um, I've never had a big dog, so I'm sort of like hanging on for dear life and trying to keep up. But it's like it's been the best thing I've ever done. Honestly, I I love it. I never going back. Was this something like you wanted a dog when you were a kid and your parents said no? Was this like a, a, a spur of the moment thing? Like how, how did this come to, how did Astra come into your life? Uh, last couple of years, uh, a lot of change, bought a house, moved uh, from the West Coast of Canada to the East Coast. And uh, part of the plan of buying a house was like, we're going to get a dog, we're going to have a backyard, the whole sort of vision of like, settling down in suburbia which sounds so lame but like it after the pandemic it was like that was the vision board um and so my wife and I did that and uh yeah it's just been like it was a plan for the last like five or six years um but we lived in an apartment in the city and it was like you can't really bring a big dog into a tiny apartment and live your life you know like I imagine mm-hmm. having a giant 90 pound dog in like a 400 square foot apartment and it um yeah, it gives me the bands. <laughs> right on. Uh, well, you're here to talk about your new Oni Press series, Cemetery Kids Don't Die, uh, drawn by Daniel Irizarry, colored by Brittany Peer, lettered by Anne World Design, launching February 7th. Uh, Matt, plug us into the Matrix. <laughs> the 21st century sucks hard, but it's made somewhat tolerable by the latest and greatest media innovations. Enter the Dreamwave, the first gaming console played entirely while you sleep. The obsession of millions around the globe, it's also the one point of solace for four friends known as the Cemetery Kids, who spend their nights roaming the endless maps of the most brutal horror game ever created as they seek to dethrone the King of Sleep, the Dreamwave's biggest, baddest, and most mysterious boss, which was fun until one of them doesn't wake up and finds their consciousness locked inside a horror game that is anything but imaginary. Now, the three remaining cemetery kids must navigate forbidden landscape to rescue their friend and pray that the secret lurking at its center doesn't follow them home. That was awesome. (laughs) thanks so what is the origin of this project um yeah i mean the origin actually this is something i've wanted about for a really long time broadly 
it is uh, from about a decade of playing World of Warcraft and having a very hefty investment in a secondary world. Um, and I, I actually just wrote about this in my newsletter today, but um, my younger brother and I were kind of like not really good friends. And then World of Warcraft came out and we started to play together and it kind of bridged the gap between us. Um, in a very real way, we kind of left all of the petty sibling bullshit behind and we just like rolled two blood elves together and did all these crazy things in the game that actually pushed us closer together in real life um you know you have to genuinely work together with other people to play that game and get to the end and that's what we did together and we couldn't accomplish anything in real life together but somehow in the game none of that mattered so it was very much a love letter to those like secondary realities that we sort of throw ourselves into and how um, gaming can be a bridge and it can kind of allow us to occupy a different uh, person or reality or character or whatever um, that allows us to sort of like leave the bullshit of the real world behind and um, yeah, it'd be something bigger than ourselves. But also how addictive that is and how uh, easily you can lose yourself to that. How did, uh, how did the team come together for this project? Yeah, um, so uh, this is a long gestating Oni book. This was uh, before Oni sort of like blew up in 2020 or 2021. Mm -hmm. This was right on the cusp of happening. And then all that happened and I kind of made peace with the project um, not happening. I, I went and I had the rights to it and everything. And then flashback to 2023 and I get a call from Hunter and he says, I'm going through the files at Oni and I see this book with your name on it and I want to make it happen. And I was like, okay, um, wow, I did not think this was going to be a thing. And at the same time, they're launching Xeno and Daniel has been doing really cool sci-fi stories in Xeno, um, mixing realities and kind of doing digital spaces in that book. And so uh, upon seeing those pages, he was the absolute first choice for this book because I really wanted someone who could um, tell a seamless story between both worlds, but also have both worlds feel very distinct from one another without it being jarring. Like I didn't want to do a thing where you hire two artists, like one to draw the game and one to draw reality because I wanted them to still have some continuity between them. And I think like when you look at the book, you can see all the game sections have very lagged paneling. And when you're in reality, it's white gutters, very clean lines. Um, everything has this sort of like sense of cleanliness. And then the colors from Brittany are very like cold and desaturated in the game. And then very warm and vibrant in reality. Again, just trying to evoke different tones, but also feel like they're part of the same world. Generally, when you're when you're hunting for artistic collaborators for a book, you know how often do you come into a project with someone in mind versus a publisher saying, "Hey, you know, let us show you our selects." Um, I would say it's about like I'm very picky. I, I'll say that I like I come in and I'm always open to kind of like having a conversation, but I go like here. Oftentimes what I do is I go like, we're going to like, if we could cast anyone for this book, we're going to go with 
trad more just as like an example of like pie in the sky someone who never agree but like using that as like sort of the ceiling so we can kind of work backwards from there um but i try to be open because schedules are so fluid and you never know who's going to be available and there's so many times where people surprise me right where you're like i haven't worked with this person daniel's a good example of someone who i don't think has done anything at a major publisher like like an ongoing or a mini or anything like that up until this point um so this was a really great opportunity to kind of like show people what he can do and and the the breadth of his work and like he's just knocking it out of the park uh your your most recent work has come out through oni obviously with cemetery kids uh mag cave with project reese nature's labyrinth uh boom with hunt for the skinwalker how have the past few years changed how you vet a publisher that you want to work with? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, loaded, I guess, given the last like couple of years, because I worked with a publisher who uh, declared bankruptcy and sort of like a really complicated, prickly process that sort of uh, rose out of that, where you sort of learn the... Uh, intricate nature of your contracts let's put it that way um so now i'm i'm very like i kind of have set aside anyone who's wasting my time i think that's the big thing for me is like i just want to work with people who are excited to work with me who want to just make comics and get rid of the bureaucracy and the bullshit and just have fun because this is supposed to be a fun job it's supposed to be cool and hopefully everyone gets paid well and the books are promoted and everyone has like a understanding of what their rights are going into the project, all that other stuff. And so far it's been great. I, I've really had, um, I don't know if it's like a come to Jesus moment, but I just had this moment where I was like, I don't want to waste my time with people who aren't immediately transparent with me. And so I kind of come into every situation and I go, I've got a lot of questions. I'm going to be that annoying guy who's like redlining everything in the contract, but I really want to know what I'm getting into because then if I agree to it, I can't come back a year later and go, oh, I didn't understand this, right? So I am very annoying in the process, but then I know what I'm getting into. <laughs> um, I've been especially interested in Mad Cave recently because it seems like they came out of nowhere with all this growth all of a sudden where they're buying paper cuts and they're licensing Flash Gordon and they're pulling in creators like like you and, and Colin Bond and David Pepos. How did how did that relationship come about? Yeah, they um they reached out to me, hmm, I'm gonna say in 2021. And at that point in time, they sent me a project and they said, I'd really like you to to write this. Um a lot of like at that point, a lot of time uh Matt Cave had like they're not creator-owned concepts, they're original concepts, but they kind of bring them to you from in-house. And they say, this is a licensed property, would you be interested? At the time when they first approached me, I was interested in what they approached me with, but I just didn't have the time. I was overloaded to the point where I was like, look, by the time I'm able to deliver this to you, it's going to be a year from now. But they followed up with me a year later and they said, hey, you said you would be available in a year. What about this, this, and this? And like to their credit super transparent super excited to work together they um are so just down to collaborate and, and kind of like let you have free reign and yeah i mean the reason they're like blowing up in terms of growth is because 
because they want to work with everyone. They give you a lot of creative freedom and they are just exceptionally talented editorially where they just like have a great knack for talent and they really just want like aggressive growth, it seems. So they're just like, it just feels like you're kind of part of a snowball and you're like, all right, cool. Like, and that's exciting, honestly, because, um, you know, there's a lot of publishers in comics right now doing what they kind of do, but they are the ones who seem to be thinking about it from all these different angles that I don't necessarily see other publishers of that size sort of doing, you know, like thinking about the kids market, thinking about the YA graphic novel space, thinking about licensed at the same time as creator owned. It's just interesting. Um, I think they're, I only think they're going to keep growing, honestly, just from that multi-pronged approach. But like, I am totally biased because I'm sort of in inside the system. So, <laughs> um, you spent some time working in film as well. What's what's something that you've learned there that you've been able to apply to your work in comics? Uh, so easily that like nothing is is like sacred. Like just genuinely that like. There are so many people that work in film that touch something, um, you know, like comics is like I was talking about this last night on another podcast, but like you get four people together. And as long as they have a creative vision, you can kind of just execute the thing. And like, that's the power of comics. It's awesome. Film, there's like 150 people. Right. And they all have a different idea of sort of what they're doing. Way more difficult to get everyone on board. But if you can, like, it, you know, it's a miracle that any film gets made, honestly. But like. It, it's a really interesting way to work because there's so many uh, points of input and so many checks and balances that you sort of really uh, start to create some distance from your work and you go, oh, like, yeah, this producer has a really good idea and I've never met this person before and this is the first time they're reading this thing, but like, hell yeah, I'll do that. Or like, I get notes, story notes from someone who's like designing a creature um, that's in the script and they were like really, really, smart story notes but this dude had worked with like Vincenzo Natale the guy who directed Cube and had collaborated with someone like him who's like a phenomenal storyteller so some of that had you know picked up along the way and and this person was just like pinpointing something and at first I was like you know what's the creature design guy giving me notes on the story for and then I took a step back and I was like that's a fucking awesome note <laughs> so it's just like that humility right like going in and sort of just being like yeah no one is uh we're all here to make the same thing and to uh create a piece of art that we're proud of so like i think it's it's just that going in with humility and um yeah trusting people uh, steering back to cemetery kids so when you're working on a project you often will tweet a uh, a mood board for it what, what was your mood board for this book um, definitely Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, definitely, uh, David Cronenberg's As Extends, which is like very obscure, but like, you know, uh, flesh console overlap of games that you can sort of play in that secondary reality. Um, Silent Hill is a huge point of inspiration, uh, for this, just because like, we only kind of scratched the surface of, in the first issue, but we created this like very mythological place called Monarch Valley. And as you sort of get deeper into the game, you learn more of the like the lore behind this mountain town that uh, sort of they're sort of in like the washed out river that leads into the town in the first issue. Then you kind of go through this like factory district that's all rusted out. 
that's the remains of the industry that once powered the town. And then you kind of get into the town proper by issue three. And the idea being that like, you want the environments to tell a story in and of themselves, which is a very silent hilly type thing. And then like uh, a lot of stuff just picked up by osmosis. Like uh, I've seen people mention like sort out online, uh, um, which is something that I have never even seen, but uh, Daniel's a huge fan of. And so that's sort of been blending into the DNA of the book. Um, yeah. Uh, if there were a Spotify playlist for this, would it be Dawkins' Dream Warriors from Nightwire and Elm Street 3, just kind of over <laughs> and over on repeat? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it actually, I do have a playlist and it is mostly um, moody, sort of like ambient music from like World of Warcraft and Elden Ring and that sort of thing, because it really, to me, just a mood of playing a video game and sort of being in that space, especially the World of Warcraft stuff, because, it, yeah, like I said before, it's just channeling the memories from that time in my life. Um, so that just like immediately puts me back there. Uh, at the heart of this comic is the Dreamwave, which looks, you know, it's this gnarly slug looking device that hooks into <laughs> your, your ears and eyes like a, like a MetaQuest headset made of biomatter. Uh, how did you and Daniel settle on on that design? Yeah, we went back and forth, but like uh, Daniel quickly was picking up what I was putting down when I was just like, you know, um, I think it's not the first time I've done something like this or created something like this. So mm -hmm. I was just sort of like, OK, this is what I wanted. Like, I want people to feel kind of grossed out when they first look at it, but like also that it can kind of make sense in the in this world. And as we kind of get deeper into this world, you'll see more things that are sort of like designed like the Dreamwave that exist, like laptops that look like they're made of flesh, that kind of thing. Um, but we we really went back and forth on the details of the world and even little things like Birdie's chair that she sits in. It's like kind of a hover chair, kind of a wheelchair, that kind of thing. We really wanted to just like every little aspect that we could like evoke about the world just through visuals. Daniel was like so on board with that sort of stuff, sending me sketches and being like, it could be A, B, or C. But the Dreamwave was one of those things where I sent him a reference point and then he sent me back the first thing and it, and it was nailed, like done, 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 like right away. So... We were on the same wavelength right away. There, there is there, there's something very end stage capitalism to be said for a device that allows you to con continue consuming content in your sleep. Yeah, yeah. Have yeah. either especially if the seen... ideas were in a future that sucks. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Have either of you seen Dream Scenario, the A24 movie starring Nicolas Cage from last year? Yeah. Yeah, I, I'll say no more, but there's... There I watched are... it last week. Ah! <laughs> and, yeah. and I had finished writing the book and I was like, oh shit, like we're on the same wavelength here. Um, but yeah, like I, I do... I I think about capitalism a lot and it... it, it themes like that sort of blend into my work especially when you're talking about technology you can't really separate technology from capitalism because it is a, a machine created by capitalism um just that broad sort of umbrella of technology and i often think about i i've said this about previous work of mine but um 
the devices we use end up using us. And I think there's so much of that um, in the dream wave where, you know, you're going to sleep and you're supposed to be like waking up refreshed or, or whatever after you've a night of gaming. But it's like, you know, if you ever had a night of intense, vivid dreaming, you don't wake up and you're like, oh, that was great. Like, you're like, holy shit, like what happened last night? So I want to sort of evoke that, right, where it's like they wake up and there's the bags under their eyes. And these are things that follow them um, into the real world, even though they're not necessarily supposed to. It's like this wouldn't be good, right, if this was created in real life. Like, I think we can all agree that, like, if you can play Xbox or Fortnite or whatever while you sleep, that probably wouldn't be good for you or your brain. You need time to rest. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so the comic is full of, of these sort of dreamscape horror elements and, and, you know, video game protagonists who look like they came straight out of a Guar video and what have you. But there's there's also a bit of, of, of Scott Pilgrim-esque video game logic. You know, characters get defeated, turn into piles of coins or, you know, tombstones, whatever. How do you go, how did you and Daniel go about sort of juggling the light and the dark there? Yeah, I mean, that was a, that was a huge consideration was like, um, how do you do something like this that, uh, about like a concept that is kind of alienating in terms of like playing video games in your sleep and fucking around with um, flesh consoles, but also inviting in a way that has a lighter tone and and the the video game itself sort of feeling like it has game mechanics as part of it, you know, where you're like things that are just familiar. I was playing a lot of Diablo while I was scribbling the book and I just love like when you kill enemies of Diablo and they just explode into items and coins and stuff. And so I was very much trying to evoke those sorts of feelings and that sort of imagery um, because like you don't want anyone who plays video games to read this and call foul necessarily. And you want also just to sort of like a blending of like teen angst and then the like nightmare video game which is like not necessarily super scary because like those sorts of video games aren't necessarily super scary they're more combat driven and that kind of thing and like so we wanted to really balance um the teenage drama and the idea of like the very core conceit of the book is like i can't connect with my older brother unless i'm playing a video game with him um, and I just wish that he would talk to me when we are having breakfast together or that kind of thing, um, which I think everyone can relate to, you know, when you have someone in your life that you're like, I just want to be your friend. And they're like, I'm good. And you're like, what? No. <laughs> How much video game stuff did you get to do uh, in terms of like map making, the lore of the game itself, you know, the kind of story bibling that doesn't necessarily make the page, but you know, it, it, it helps you feel like you've created a richer, richer world by knowing it exists. Yeah. Tons. Um, I'm like flipping through my book to see if I can find it. I have like a journal on my desk where I draw stuff all the time, because oftentimes if you ask for like, I, I say this all the time, but if you ask for a complicated layout, if I can't draw it, even in my crude style, that I shouldn't be asking someone else to draw it. So there's a lot of things with the game that I drew out in my journal just because I want to like see if logically we could make these types of pages work or these mechanics from video games actually work inside like a static page uh, effectively. Um, I can't find it right now, but one of the things that I'm really proud of is like in issue two, we do like a full on like Resident Evil style puzzle where there's like a visual thing 
on the floor in a room and we're looking down at it and they're uh, given a riddle and then all of the imagery, they have to line the imagery up in order to solve the riddle. So like visually they have to solve the riddle on the page for them to progress. And like, that sounds insane, I'm sure. But when I spoke that to Daniel, Daniel was like, I understand and hell yeah, let's do it. And it was just this thing where I was like, I've never seen this done in comics before um, in terms of like, bringing this sort of video game puzzle or, or whatever you, you would call it into like a static page, but we figured out how to do it. And I'm really pumped. Uh, so little things like that, where I was like, what are things that I love from video games that I grew up with? Like Resident Evil is like a core part of my upbringing. Um, they're dumb and cheesy, but they're just like, so, so good. And, and so like the, I feel like, I love a survival horror game that has good puzzles in it. And so I was like, I got to put something like that in this book if we're going to go in that territory. Um, and so we'll see what people think, but it's going to be in the March issue. What are, what are you know, you mentioned growing up playing a lot of World of Warcraft. What are your video gaming habits now? Do you, do you even get time to play? Um, I... <laughs> I like didn't have a console until uh, June of this past year, and then I I got an Xbox and I got like a I got like Game Pass, uh, which is like it's just basically like Netflix for games, and I have been like playing constantly. Uh, like I played a lot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the like asymmetrical horror game where like someone plays as Leatherface and chases you around the house with as you're like a survivor and you try to escape which is just like catnip to me like i just love it so much um a lot of diablo 4 um most recently alan wake 2 which is like you know about a writer who's trapped in his own story which is like extremely relatable to a, a point where like it shook me to my core uh well playing <laughs> um and i just started the resident evil 2 remake actually speaking of resident evil it's funny the the texas chainsaw game reminded me of there was there was a Friday the Thirteenth game for the original Nintendo, and it was oh, like yeah. it was like one of the hardest games ever. I just remember just like going in circles, and you know if you run into Jason, that's it. You're you're just you're hit yeah. underneath. And he's in like a purple jumpsuit with like a bright like aqua blue ski mat uh, hockey mask. Yeah, completely like totally wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we've come a long way. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. Um, yeah. Tell us about your World of Warcraft character, uh, Wingleaf the Warlock. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I was not prepared for this. Um, <laughs> yeah, just a just a Blood Elf Warlock who, like, at this point in the game, like, Warlocks were the class that got, like, a, a free mount, so to speak, um, which was, like, a huge thing because anyone who played World of Warcraft uh, in the early days probably remembers that mounts the things that you like ride to make you go faster in the in the game um were like i think it was 65 gold or something and like that was like a punishing level of money to to raise you had to like really farm and and just like grind it out mm -hmm. and so warlocks got a mount early like a demonic horse and so i just remember playing with friends and riding around on my demonic horse and because I had it early. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, we're talking about 
probably a decade ago. So it's like it's it's murky. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I I was thinking about the the sort of second life aspect of of gaming, and I remember it being kind of like a huge deal in the two thousands. You know, whether it was Warcraft or The Sims or Second Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, personally, I was I was a The Sims guy. You know, uh, I tried not to use the Rosebud code. I like to earn my fake yeah, video game enough. money house, uh, unless yeah. I wanted to do stupid stuff like lock my friend's avatar in a dark room with only a buff- buffet table and a bathtub to cry in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like that. It, you're right, though. There was a huge wave of like MMOs at that time too. There was like yeah. Star Wars Galaxies and Fantasy Star Online and. I actually like dabbled in a lot of this stuff, but it was like, wow, was the thing that really um, stuck with me. And I wasn't even like a world, like a Warcraft player before that. I just sort of like was vaguely aware, but I think it was just the fact that like I was 17 and I like was, you know, very angsty. And so it was like, and I just bought myself a first, my first computer, like a Dell uh, desktop with like a, you know, four by three little thin monitor and being like, Mm -hmm probably like 1800 bucks and had like a you know 256 megs of ram or something and i was like whoa wow uh and so like that was my life like i would just sit at that like little desk in my bedroom and like yeah play video games on that tower and mod the the sims i used to always download skins for the sims and change my characters into like mario and luigi and, and stuff like that just like really dumb so one of the members of the party in the game uh in the game in the comic is a mushroom lady given your body of work was this unavoidable (laughs) oh yeah absolutely yeah i mean i i had said to daniel that uh she was a druid and then we were like talking about like what types of druids do you like and i was like i'm gonna be honest with you let's just make her a fungus druid because like i just like you know, and thinking about the dynamics of a party too, in terms of like, you need a tank, which is like, uh, pick is like the warrior class, like tank with the giant sword. Um, Birdie is like the hunter, which is like the DPS sort of like as much damage as, as possible. Then you've got uh, Wilson, who's a necromancer, who's sort of like heavy hitter, but very, very weak. And then you have uh, the fungus lady, Enid, who is like the healer essentially. And I was trying to really think about how, like if you were going to play a game with four people, you would need classes that complement one another because if you, you know, if everyone's a warrior, you get wiped pretty quick. (laughs) And were you looking also to balance the out of character interactions in a similar way like did you sit back and think that you wanted the the in-game stuff to reflect the character or because i know plenty of people who play a character who reflects them and then people who like to play a character who is completely the antithesis of who they are yeah i mean i for the sake of ease all of the characters sort of reflect their like real world persona um because this is being like maybe this is too inside baseball, but like making sure that there's visual cues that connect both of them, you know? So like colors, like Enid wears green and and is a fungus lady in the game and is very green, right? And just simple things like that. So it's like, if you're flipping through the book, 
your eyes can just track who's who, or you can intuit who's who. Um, and that's just a simple thing that is based on like making it easy for people to read. But I like, you know, I play sometimes like little female gnomes in, in games, right? And they're like evil to their absolute core <laughs> just because it's like, it's fun to do those things where it's like, okay, you can help this guy, you can push him. And I'm like, I'm going to push him every time just to see what happens if I kill this major character. I play uh, role-playing games very chaotically um, and, and I'm not like that in real life. I'm very planned and orderly. Like the way I write is very, very uh, like I you know, I do outlines and I break those down into panels and it's like very orderly and I do it the same way every single time. But when I play video games, I'm just an agent of chaos. <laughs> Maybe that I'm, I'm ex like, you know, excising a demon of some sort <laughs> through that. <laughs> so Matt, this is where I lean on you for your, your expertise. Uh, this comic talks in multiple places about the importance of having a tank in your party. For the Luddite in the room, <laughs> what is tank? <laughs> a tank is a fighter or a barbarian, uh, a big meat shield of a character. Because you'd think yeah. in, you know, some fantasy concepts, like, oh, well, you've got magic. Why do you need this big, dumb meat shield? Because you can just magic at people. It's because in role-playing games, there are, A, ways around magic. And B, magic users are frail, dainty little things. And if your enemy can get close to you, they will kill you in two or three blows. Oh, yeah. So you need said tank to, you know, charge in. You can't just have, I mean, not just magic users, rogues, rangers tend to not have the hit points of a barbarian or a fighter. As someone who d does not lean towards playing a tank, I completely respect those who I play with who <laughs> will wade in and just, you know, punch things while I snipe at them from a distance with my bow or sneak up behind them and stab them quietly while they're not looking. Yeah, you just need basically like a damage sponge, someone who can go in and just be like, I'm just going to let things hit me and then you guys hit that thing that's hitting me and like all occupy their attention like when i was playing diablo 4 i played a druid who turned into a bear and the only thing that i was supposed to do every time we were in combat was run in as fast as possible make as much like mess and attack things and then all of the enemies would swarm on me and my buddies would just stay in the back and just cast spells or shoot arrows or what have you and while all the enemies are focused on me i have like Let's just say round numbers. I have a thousand hit points and the mage may have 250. So the mage may only take five hits before they go down. So they appreciate someone who can kind of go in there and just let them all rain hellfire upon you. <laughs> Matt, you had me at meat shield. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, speaking of food, so there, there, was, there was one thing in this comic that like i immediately had to stop and and start researching uh talk to me about the canadian delicacy known as pizza pops because i did not know the this was a thing until i read what? this comic. for real they're not they're not like uh no 
And okay, in fact, like if you go to, to me, the, then if yeah. you go to the website, they say like Canada's number one delicacy. Oh wow! Okay, well then, like this is news to me. Genuinely, I just thought it was a thing that everyone knew what they were. So wait, you have pizza pockets then, and we just have pizza pops? Is that the we, thing? We we have. I mean, we have hot pockets. We have, yeah, we have bananas. Yeah. Like, yeah. like when I first when I first read the phrase pizza pops, I'm like, is that like like a pizza on a stick? <laughs> wow, okay. <laughs> well i mean the book is set in toronto so it, it's completely uh within reason that uh they're talking about this this is really funny because i just didn't know that americans wouldn't know what that is that's crazy i didn't know they're like localized to to canada <laughs> yeah and they're made by pillsbury too so it's not like you know we don't have that that yeah. brand but yeah crazy huh. Weird. <laughs> well, now, you know, if you ever come to Canada, you can just come by and get our delicacy pizza pops. I thought you were going to mention poutine, honestly. Like, that's where I thought you were going with this. But the uh, Poutine is delicious. I've had that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah they, they've started opening Tim Hortons down here in New Jersey. We know that one, too, oh, now. Wow. Yeah. The crappiest coffee in Canada has finally made its way down to New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the, the the same day Cemetery Kids drops, uh, you have a backup coming out in uh, James Tynan and Michael Oming's Blue Book 1947 at Dark Horse. Uh, what can you tell us about that uh, story? Yeah, so it's a it's a Canadian sort of folklore about a thing called the Dungavarn Wolper. Um, basically, uh, I'm from the Maritimes in Canada, which was like uh, you know miners, farmers, fishermen and lumberjacks and so in new brunswick a neighboring province to where i grew up um there's this thing called the dungavarn whooper it was this like urban legend about this uh lumberjack who was murdered by his fellow lumberjacks and lurks within these woods and makes like a a whooping call um that you can hear from the trees so james sort of said hey do you want to write one of these true weird things and i said i do but only if I can tell people about weird shit from Canada, because I feel like um, it's such an underrepresented space. And I feel like I need to do a duty to sort of like tell people about these things that we grew up with because they are so silly. And I feel like American urban legends really get a huge spotlight. But Canada has tons of little weird ones that I, I just really want people to know about. Was it, I mean, did you, did you already kind of have like the full knowledge of this, of, of this uh, cryptid or, or was there any like research going, going into to writing? There was definitely research, but it's like we, a couple of years ago, Canada did this thing where they released um, stamps based on like local ghost stories in every province. And so I was like, weird, like, like ghost story stamps or cryptid stamps. Cool. So I checked them out. And then like from that, that's how I learned about the Dungavar and Whooper and kind of like went back when he when James kind of came to me and said, do you have anything that would kind of fit this um, mandate? I was like, yeah. And so I kind of gave him a list of all these different things from all these different provinces. And like in my mind, I would love to do one for every province because um, I, I don't think this is a big deal, but I've got another one coming later on in another issue of Blue Book. Um, that's about another thing um, from British Columbia, another province that I 
I lived in for a really long time and it has its own cryptid. Not many people know about it, but people take it very, very seriously um, in that aspect of Canada to the point where it's like, yeah. And like uh, the person who drew it um, is from BC and uh, alleges that they know someone who has seen this cryptid, which we both think is really funny, even though, yeah, anyway, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but there's another one coming. Since it's not, I guess, spoiler because it's a, a cryptid that's out there. What's the name of it? Because I'm usually, I know my cryptids pretty well. And I was like, I don't remember one from British Columbia. Ogopogo. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah I, I I hadn't, wow. I just, I, Canada geography's own, like, not my strong suit. Uh, I know Ogopogo. I had forgotten yeah. that that was BC. Uh, yeah. I, I kind of want like an American 50 state cryptid series now. <laughs> yeah, truly, right? Like, I, I think there's so much. James is really like scratching that itch in a lot of the stuff that he's doing, and I, I just love that idea of like, Blue Book is such a fascinating thing because it's like, it's something that, you know, ninety percent of publishers would tell you this is unmarketable and this isn't going to work. But when you're James, you can kind of go and you're like, I'm going to write like true weird stories about UFO lore, and I, I think that like comics is such a fascinating space to break down that sort of stuff because it's such a i talked about this uh recently but like comics are a great like literary tool um they can teach people uh, reluctant readers or, or what have you um to sort of engage with material that they may otherwise not engage with and i think there's a really interesting idea of creating like visual history of like ufos and cryptids and that kind of stuff because there's been a long era where we have like hokey sort of like you know, made for TV documentaries where it's like, you know, British Columbia, Canada, a serene lake, but something lies beneath the surface. And it's like, you know, that, yeah, just the cheesy sort of like faux reality documentary. I want to get away from that and, and do more in this space because I think it's so ripe. Like, that's why I jumped at Hump from the Skinwalker when they asked me to do it because I was just like, I'm, you know, I don't necessarily even believe in any of it. Um, I am a very big skeptic when it comes to aliens or anything like this, but that's why it fascinates me because there are people who really truly believe that they have these encounters. And up until recently, if you told people you saw aliens, you ruined your life, you know? So to commit to that is uh, pretty valiant, honestly, because it's like, I don't know, in the 90s to be like, I saw an alien and I'm going to go on the news and tell everyone like, you know, you lose your job or what have you, but people would just think you're nuts, right? And now people are like, oh, yeah, we've known about aliens for like 40 years. They're just around everywhere. We see them all the time. And you're like, what? Like, yeah. You'd be downright spooky. <laughs> my, the, I, Ogopogo inspired one of my favorite episodes of the X Files. Oh, hell it, yeah. Uh, Quagmire where uh, th they go to the lake and it it's Lake Okaboji and Mulder and Scully wind up marooned and have this just very funny discussion about Captain Ahab. <laughs> I, that show so incredibly ahead of its time. I feel like if it, if it aired right now, people would go insane. Uh, just, I, I was revisiting it actually well scripting up for the Skinwalker because like tonally, um, there was just something in the water in the 90s in terms of like aliens and conspiracies and that kind of thing. And like, 
I don't know. I that show is just a what a magnificent piece of television. And the fact that it's like episodic and it's like it aired for like 10 full seasons. Hmm. One of my favorite things ever. You mentioned Hunt for the Skinwalker, and you know, you got to adapt this nonfiction book into a comic miniseries. You know, you're working with the authors of the of, of the book. How was that that whole experience where you've kind of got all those layers going there? Very interesting, right? Um, one of the most challenging aspects of it is that the author of the book is a character in the book. So I am going to this person and going like, I'm adapting your life and I'm writing, like I'm writing a version of a version of a story, right? And I have to go to the person who wrote the story, who's in the story for notes about it. So it was a very interesting process in that way because you have to be very, um, I was very upfront with them right from the get-go and I said, look, I don't believe in any of this, but like, if you guys can convince me, cool, uh, you know? And I think that that was uh, part of the reason that they hired me to do it, honestly, because they said like, a lot of people were coming forward and being like, I'm a huge believer in aliens and that sort of stuff. And I was like, I'm approaching this as a skeptic. But if you read the book, the book is very much that as well. The author is saying, I'm a skeptic. I don't believe any of this actually happened. And then he writes an entire book about it. And by the end, is more of a believer than he sort of started out to be. I don't think I had that same journey <laughs> personally. But I, I think what's fascinating is like working with someone like George Knapp, who has been covering aliens forever has been you know doing coast to coast and that kind of thing has been in that space of like conspiracies and and sort of like hidden hidden cryptids in the underbelly of, of americana i love that i love that you know getting to talk to someone who's dedicated decades of their life to covering fringe news stories and like talking to him and his whole office is just lined with files like filing cabinets overflowing with papers of of stories about aliens and stuff. And he's just like rooting through them and showing them to me and, and going through, like they sent me something like 36 pages of like uh, one, like single spaced notes related to the book. And I got to go through that sort of stuff and just, you know, sort of see the process of what it's like to report on this sort of thing. Um, so I'll treasure the experience because I've always wanted to adapt something into, into comics and sort of look at that, process um i'm often pulling from so many different places when i'm doing creator-owned work that like to only have one piece of text to refer back to it was great you know i'm used to reading like 10 different books and watching 20 different movies and then being like how do i make this into like a stew so to only have one thing i'm like ah i got blinders on i can't look over here i have to just like keep focused on the thing in front of me all right, so now we're going to get into some fun time travel shenanigans here. Okay. Uh, you have teased an announcement about a new creator-owned book uh, to be announced Tuesday, which is tomorrow as we're recording this, but will be last week by the time the episode drops. Awesome. I was hoping this was going to be the case. Um, it is a book <laughs> called Blow Away. Um, it is very much a love letter to the movies Blow Up and Blow Out. Um both of those movies are about someone who's involved in media who thinks that they discover a murder of some sort. So Blow Away is about a videographer who's like working on like a planet Earth type show in the northern Arctic circle of Canada um, 
with their camera mounted on a mountain looking across an expanse. One day, two climbers show up on the mountain, and she suddenly becomes more interested in what they're up to than the animals that she's supposed to be filming. And then, as she's watching them, they seem to be arguing as they're climbing up. She doesn't know. She can't hear what they're saying to one another. They get to the top. There appears to be a confrontation between them, and they don't come back down. So she starts to investigate, but she's in the middle of the Arctic on her own. And the idea behind the book is we live in a very conspiratorial time, but we also live in a time where regular-ass people become objects of societal fascination. And mm -hmm. uh, we make up these narratives about these people. We cherry-pick details, and we come to conclusions um, I think about that, like Gabby Petito girl who disappeared probably like six months ago mm -hmm. and how people were looking at TikTok videos and looking at like what kind of book her boyfriend was reading and being like, oh, he's probably abusive because he's reading like uh, this thing or whatever. And it's like, I find that very fascinating. I think we kind of live in like a true crime brain era. And so this is sort of me talking about that stuff, but in a environment completely removed from all, all of that uh, societal sort of like baggage, but does it bleed through when you're all by yourself? Does that stuff still just come with you? Um, so it's kind of exploring that. Uh, who, who are you working with and uh, wh wh where's it getting published through? It's coming out through Boom. Um, and the artist is Nicola Izzo. He's drawn some Firefly issues. This is going to be his first sort of creator own book. Mm. He's an artist based out of... Um, I believe Italy, um, phenomenally talented. We're doing a lot of interesting stuff with the environment um, in terms of like using white space through snow, through gutters, that kind of thing to really um, create like a distinct visual sense for the book. But also um, we're doing dynamic things with like footage, right? Looking at uh, the same set of images over and over and over again and noticing small details in them, going, watching them backwards, that kind of thing. I was very, I'm very fascinated with the idea of like, how can you, um, comics is this very unique medium where you can show people the same image, but based on the information that you have as a reader, completely refine what that image means. So like there's a particular sequence that we see in issue one, and then we subsequently see that sequence every single issue and the context of it changes every single time that we see it. Um, I'm a formalist freak. So this is like, yeah, I pitched this on this sort of concept of like, we take these images, these 16 panels, if you will, and show it to people over and over again. And every single time it should change how they feel about these. So the idea is to sort of put you in the paranoid mindset of the main character and go, do I know what I'm looking at? Can I trust my eyes? It's awesome. So uh, if it's getting announced tomorrow, that's we're looking at like an April release. My uh... yeah, it's April. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. It's uh, awesome. a second of uh, four books this year. Uh, two of which I can't talk about yet. But like we're doing mm -hmm. um, we're doing a full creator owned world tour this year. That that <laughs> that is awesome. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, this is the first time where we've known 
a, a guest is coming on and has an announcement coming out within like a span of a couple days where we've actually got to find out what the announcement is. I'm not putting anybody on blast, but I can't tell you how many like Tuesday or Wednesdays after recording, Matt comes at me with like a a, a fucking CBR or games radar link or or whatever announcing a creator's <laughs> project was just we just recorded with and I'm like Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was kind of hoping for this because I kind of knew like from doing this before that you guys released like a week after or whatever. So yeah. I was like, I think we can talk about this, which is rad. I'm super stoked to work with Boom. And and frankly, like this kind of came out of Hump for the Skinwalker. They read the first issue. They really liked it. And they were like, well, do you have anything original that you want to do here? And I was like, oh, yeah, I've got lots of ideas. So I... I'm very fascinated to see it's super grounded, um, no supernatural, no uh, weird sort of genre elements. It's just like straight up neo-noir crime, um, sort of me more in my undone by blood sort of vibe than um, Cemetery Kids Don't Die. But the idea being that like, if you're not fucking with Cemetery Kids Don't Die, here's something else in a completely different tone that... Um, doesn't have any of those heightened genre elements that maybe you'll fuck with uh speaking of of the kind of total of four books that you got coming out this year uh again i know this is down the road can't talk about it yet but i i you know i know you wrote in your newsletter one of them is with hayden sherman and that was an immediate pop for me so yeah. i look forward to seeing that down you know later this year <laughs> yeah i mean i'll speak briefly about it but like uh hayden and i worked on angel and spike at boom um in <laughs> 2020 and we signed on right at the beginning of the pandemic and we signed on for 12 issues. We got three and then we got canceled. <laughs> so we found out very quickly that we jived really, really well. And I said, like, look, I don't know if uh, we can find a home for this project, but I have this idea. And I think that you would be the perfect person to sort of bring this into the world with me. Big, expansive, uh, lots of DPSs with Hayden's intricately detailed art um and so we went to a publisher i've never worked with before pitched it to them and over a long gestation period now four years out um is coming out uh it will be coming out in june so you'll hear about it in march um and it's like an eight issue maxi series every issue is oversized um the idea being that we're going to do four we're going to take a short break release the trade for the first four come back and do the next four um so like occupying a year of everyone's life lives where we just get to talk about this thing and hayden is genuinely one of the most talented people i've ever worked with i am just so thrilled that we get to collaborate because every issue is just like a dream come true and like we just jive we've done a couple batman shorts together we did like an aquaman short at dc um and like we just we just seem to really understand the cadence of each other's work. And so it's like, it's been like a really um, fantastic collaboration. And I mean, you know, we've been doing it for four years. So hopefully they'd say the same thing. <laughs> Speaking of Batman shorts, you have a black and white coming out in a couple months with Ashley Wood. When you're writing with, Knowing it's a black and white story, not not mm -hmm. just black and white lowercase, but black and white is in the the Batman brand. 
do you sit back like what can I do with a script to work with that particular color palette or do you just oh, write yeah. it like you'd write any other short it's very much like what do we do that sort of evokes that black and white pulp feel but also like when they come to you and they say do you want to write batman for ashley wood you go yeah hell yeah i do like i've never <laughs> i typed the email in all capital letters like because also this is for ashley's first interior batman work ever and i like apparently they had sent him a bunch of batman shorts and he read uh one of the ones that i did with hayden and said i want that guy to write it and i was like okay um it, it took me a little while to process that and then we sort of like after i got over that we started chatting and i said frankly i'm not calling the shots here i just said ashley what do you want me to write for you what do you want to draw because that's the big thing and then going back and making sure that that works for black and white i also have another idea for another black and white thing that really evokes that black and white sort of feel and something something that's really built into the core conceit of of it um but i'm obviously going to keep it close to the chest because i think i there may be an opportunity to do it down the line but like it, it is very much like you always want to think about that sort of stuff really because like color is a storytelling tool in and of itself and when you remove that you have to make sure um, you can't go like, oh, you know, his red, the red blood trickles out from the thing, right? It has to evoke something else beyond the color. Um, it's an interesting challenge. I, I loved it, though. Like, I, I find that sort of stuff really fascinating because I, you know, when you write comics and think about comics all the time, as I'm sure we all do, uh, you start to think about the different ways that you can kind of like you know, different layouts or different ways that you can approach comic storytelling because it's such a fluid medium that, you know, as soon as you take things away, I find that a very interesting challenge. I love kind of those sorts of assignments. It looks like it's it looks like your dance card's pretty full, but is there anything else coming up that we didn't get to talk about that you want to make sure you get a plug in for? Not that I can think of. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, my dance card is full and I and I'm feeling good. I like I have spent the last year working really hard on on coming out with a full sort of like year's worth of work to um kind of just like i almost like create like a statement year for myself where i'm like okay this is what i'm about i've been doing this for almost seven years now and so um i kind of you know you work with enough publishers and you sort of learn the lay of the land that you also kind of have to figure out at a certain point what you're offering that's different than other people. And so I've tried to really turn this into a, like a year where I'm like, this is what I'm all about. This is stuff that you can only get from me and my collaborators and hopefully people will fuck with it. Any upcoming signings or appearances as uh, the, the, the year of Zach begins? <laughs> um, I am going to actually do like a signing tour this summer, actually. Um, where I'm going to drive down the east coast of the states and I'm going to loop back like through Philly way and then I'm going to go up through uh, Toronto and Montreal and then go back home. Um, that's probably going to be in like June or July. Um, so I'll announce sort of what stores I'm going to be at later on the year. But the idea is like I'm going to try and do like 14 or 15 signings in a row and really make it a big deal because I've never done that. And like now that I'm on the East coast 
I've really just wanted an excuse to drive down to Maine and eat some seafood and like drive into New York and that kind of thing. So it's like, maybe I'll uh, really regret driving into New York, but um, I want to just like have a road trip, hop in the car with my dog and just sort of like, you know, hit the road and take Astor and all the signings with me. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah. I may change my tune. On that. <laughs> so penultimate question. Uh yeah. what are you reading right now? Do you want like modern stuff or is it just like what's on my desk at the at the moment? Whatever prose, comics, new, sure. old, just hit us sure. with what with what you're so, reading. I just read Superman for all seasons uh like two nights ago and it like knocked me dead. Like just genuinely one of the best Superman stories ever told. Um absolutely like breathtakingly gorgeous there's this like spread of uh clark and pa kent just like standing on the smallville farm as the sun's setting and that's like burned into my memory of like the simplest sort of dps but so gorgeous um i've been reading a lot of the gutanabe uh hp lovecraft manga adaptations um i just got the shadow over in his mouth um, for Christmas, and I just finished At the Mountains of Madness, both volume one and two. Um, in terms of prose, I just finished reading Gillian Flynn's Sharp Objects, because um, I'm a big fan of the show, but I, I sort of have never read Gillian Flynn's prose, because like Gone Girl is such a fantastic film, and the Sharp Objects show is so good that I was like, I don't know if I need to, but I went back and read the book, and it's, it's phenomenal. And then... Um, the Devil Takes You Home, a novel from last year by Gabino Iglesias um, about uh, a Mexican man who sort of lives on the like border of like Mexico, but lives in the States. His young daughter uh, contracts like cancer and she dies pretty quickly, like in the first or second chapter. And he becomes a hitman um, to sort of like pay for the medical bills. Very breaking bad-esque but it is like crime horror sort of overlap and it is like heartbreaking but gorgeous and beautiful it got nominated for the bram stoker um award last year and it's just like yeah it's like knocking me dead i i yeah and also it's extremely depressing so if you read it go in with uh you know preparing to feel bad <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, Zach, this has been a fantastic hour. Uh, final question as we release you back into the world. How can people follow you online, keep up with Cemetery, Kids Don't Die, and uh, everything else you're going to have going on this year? Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm not going to call it X. Um, uh, Zach B.E. Thompson. I'm also on Blue Sky under that name and on Instagram under that name. I also have a newsletter um, There's currently through Substack, but it's moving over to button down. But if you sign up for it on Substack, I'll just port you over to the new one once the time comes. Um, that's the best way to sort of keep up. I think the newsletter is going to be the thing where I'll probably post longer form updates about things and, and sort of like I'm spending less and less time on uh I'm going to use like air quotes around social media because it doesn't feel very social anymore. It just feels like a weirdly hostile place where I have to be to promote things. But I'm trying to, um, like many other creators, create like a more of a walled garden space where I can kind of just talk about things at length and turn my newsletter into a place where we can just like 
I'll hang out away from all the noise on social media and just chat about cool stuff. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Zach, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, guys. This has been awesome. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash ComicsXF, where a dollar donation gets you a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $2 donation gets you early access to WMQ&A and a shout-out at the end of every episode. A $3 donation gets you a sticker, early access, and a shout-out. A $5 donation gets you access to our monthly bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the comic appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $25 donation lets you request a primer, one of our custom reading guides for a series, character, or creator at ComicsXF, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Lisa Slack, Will Redman, Tobias Carroll, Mike Sagawa, Will Nevin, Liz Large, Asimov Fangirl, Carla Pacheco, and Robert Secundus. You're all special, and we love you. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. You can also follow ComicsXF on Facebook, Instagram, and Blue Sky. And until next week, remember... Rob Liefeld's greatest contribution to comics isn't Deadpool or Youngblood or even Major X. It's his impression of Todd McFarlane. W-N-Q-A.